Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 42nd and year-end closing session for 2021. Um, we thought we would do a little bit of reflection, um, think about the year that was, uh, talk a little bit about the podcast, and perhaps uh, also speculate a little bit about the year that's yet to come, 2022. What will happen? What will the big things be, the themes, the trends? So stay tuned. We'll get back to those. But let's start about this this podcast, which is mm. new for, for this year. Um, so tell me, Richard, how do you feel about the podcast? <laughs> so it's been fun. <laughs> and here we are in, in episode 42 discussing the meaning of the podcast, because that's the magic number 42, isn't it? Um, for all us Hitchhiker's exactly. Guide the Galaxy fans. So, so um, I, it's been fun. I, I've really enjoyed it. And I think listeners can tell that we enjoy ourselves. It's great to get together once a week and, and have some time talking through the hot issues uh, in a way, I think what we're doing is sort of exposing to the world the kind of conversations we might have had in our <laughs> previous roles with these tech companies when we would meet up and, and talk about the issues of the day. But I feel we've been able to do that and then go further. And I, I hope people have found useful the fact that we've, I think, been able to share some of our experience of building policy teams and working with policy teams, which I hope goes some way to kind of demystifying this thing. If there's anything we want to do, it's, it's sort of take this thing that can appear sort of to some people, you know, mysterious, uh, somehow socially harmful and try and explain how it actually works and see that there is some social value in the kind of work that you and I have spent, you know, each of us are sort of more than a decade doing. Um, so I hope that's, that sort of comes through and I've, I've certainly enjoyed it and enjoyed working through all these issues. And I feel in the 41 previous episodes, if people have the time to listen to them, they'll be able to find out I hope something interesting about pretty much any of the hot topical tech issues of the day. And that in itself may, even if they disagree with us, it may prove useful as a kind of stimulation for thought. Especially if they disagree with us, right? Because oh, yes. that's the point. Because yeah. that's what we want. We want people to disagree with us because when they do, I think that uh, we move this debate forward. And for me, one of the things that really has been uh, sort of one of the big takeaways is that I think uh, many of the, the 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 subjects that we have discussed, the ideas that you have put on the table that we have sort of banded about are open questions yes they're ongoing processes and and being able to feed into them from sort of an outsider perspective um i think has been uh, really really nice even if we're we're probably going to be discredited as outsiders we're going to be like uh people are going to think that we're not really outsiders we are actually one step removed from uh, what we did before which i think is helpful um so do you have a favorite episode um, I, I really enjoyed the one where we talked about committee hearings, I think episode 30, when we talked about committee hearings, because they, those like play quite a large part in the life of a public policy team. They become quite dominant. And, and I enjoyed just being able to talk about that, frankly, and openly about how you kind of, how it feels from our side of the table to go into those committee hearings. Uh, they're you know, typically televised and, and it's the old iceberg thing, isn't it? You're seeing the tip of the iceberg. You're not seeing the nine tenths of it that's underwater where the interesting stuff is happening. And so I say, for me, that was kind of cathartic <laughs> to be able to talk through that and I hope sort of uh, useful for other people to, to hear how it feels from the side of those people who are going in front of a committee. What about yeah. you? And was, where were you on your favorites? Well, I, I think just to, to comment yeah. on that, I think you're right. I mean, we've tried to have this mix of craft episodes where we talked about what, what does policy look like and what is the craft? And I hope that those have been helpful. And I, I really like the feedback that we've gotten where people have both hmm. let us know when we got it wrong and, and said this was really helpful because I was thinking through something. So I, I'd like to encourage people to keep that feedback coming because that helps us to make the, the episodes more interesting. Um, the the others are more subject oriented right. sort of looking into the issues etc and i think those are those are uh, it's sort of a, another hopefully uh, interesting format my favorite i think i i really liked it when we read barlow um, oh yes yeah yeah <laughs> because i we because we read an entire text and it was so it was so seminar like and we were looking into the the sort of the choice of words the the text the context of you know and that entire Chapter also feels concluded. The cyber libertarian yeah. cap chapter feels concluded. It was nice to have a chance to reflect on on an ideological arc that has closed. If that makes yes. sense. So that was that was episode 
24, I think it was, the, the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. Yes, That's I, right. I, That's right. Yeah, really enjoyed that one as well. And and as you say, we've got, um, as I'm sort of looking through the episodes, there, there are these sort of four buckets, I think, you can put the episodes into. There are the ones that are about the business of doing policy work. And we talk about working with legal teams and comms teams and how to structure policy teams. Uh, there are the ones that are uh, looking at classic texts, which the John Perry Barlow one is a great example. And there are three or four others where we look at classic texts over the years that have influenced the debate. And I, I agree the John Perry Barlow one is kind of special within that. <laughs> um, there are some where we look at topical policy issues, so things that are hot today, uh, responding to what's in the news environment. And then there's a, a perhaps the largest number of ones where we're looking at perennial <laughs> policy issues, the policy issues that have been around for a long time. So things like net neutrality, which is, you know, been there forever, copyright, which have been there forever. Um, uh, but I, I certainly, yes, the John Perry Barlow one also stood out for me as kind of a <laughs> lot of fun to talk about that text. I think we, we've also at times talked about Larry Lessig's text, which has also been interesting. Yeah. Um, and then most recently, Eric S. Raymond's The Cathedral and the Bazaar, I think in episode 40. So all of those have been uh, uh, great for me. And I think you to, to go back and revisit something in many cases that we hadn't read for a number of years and see how relevant it is today in 2021. Yeah, and and also it's an attempt to sort of find or articulate the kind of canon for for tech policy, where there are a couple of texts that have been really influential. I mean, you mentioned the Cathedral and Bazaar. It had it had an enormous influence on tech policy because it had an enormous influence on developers. It's not it's not just inside baseball, but it's all of the different stakeholders who sh- that shape tech policy um, have a couple of texts that texts that they relate to, and I think. Uh, Lessig is another one called mm. the four regulators, right? And yes. I think that that those having those mental models, uh, examining them and thinking through them, I think that's 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 really to me it's helpful to to just reflect on them uh, with a little bit of distance as well. So yeah, um, so as you say, it's been it's been maybe it's equal parts therapy and <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, between the two. And so, yeah, so around it, so Lessig was was episode fourteen, and then the other two classic texts I think we looked at were. Uh, the OECD privacy principles in episode 17, yeah. which are still very, very current. The OECD privacy principles help frame legislation like the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation today, so that's super present. And then episode 31, the Budapest Convention. So we've looked at some government texts as well, the Budapest Convention on uh, cybersecurity and cybercrime. <clears throat> uh, so we've looked at a range of them, both both sort of arguably sort of uh, uh, text from from the outsiders in the tech world, but also text from insiders in the governmental world responding to uh, uh, the the um, uh, advent of the internet and the way the internet is shaping our world. What is an episode that you would still like to do, but we haven't gotten to yet? Ooh, so I, I think we've only just scratched the surface of um, competition law. So we did have an episode, I think we talked about big, <clears throat> big organizations. From farmer's market to pharma markets. Yep, that's right. 23 yeah, yeah. was a big one. And then and then we've touched on competition in a number of other issues. So for example, I know as we've talked about things like online safety, I've expressed my view that breaking up companies is not not necessarily automatically going to lead to good outcomes from online safety point of view. It doesn't, you know, it's a trade-off and, and actually safety might suffer uh, with smaller entities. That's just one example of where we've sort of bumped into some of these competition issues. But but it is very current in the debate. And I, I think it's certainly one we'll come back to in 2022. Um, it's difficult. It's complex. There's uh, uh, quite different schools of thought in different parts of the world and in different ends of the political spectrum. But I think it's certainly one that we'd need to uh, come back to again and deserve more time. And yourself, yeah. where, where are you missing? Oh, I, I think I think one that would perhaps be controversial but really interesting to go through uh, in more depth than we've done so far, at least, is one on trade associations. Oh, yes. Um, and think about trade associations, how to work with them, when to start them, when to leave them, uh, what their fortes are, their strengths, and you know where they have some peculiar weaknesses, how to engage, is it important to be on the board? I think there's tons yeah. of stuff around those third parties and it's not just trade associations i think it can be expert groups working groups it can be panels it can be even um the things like how do you work with academics and and how do you absolutely not work with academics and i think that whole 
field or third parties that's so because it's so in a sense it's it, when people talk about it it's always as if there was this nefarious intent in collaborating you know this trade association you're you're funding third parties and people make it sound as if you're you're uh, killing kittens i don't yes. know. i mean it's like you're, you're, it's it's and i think that that to understand the ecosystem of policy uh, i think is an episode that would be nice to dig into yeah that's really interesting and and plus i mean at the same time you can both be criticized for funding third parties uh, that's offensive and at the same time, be approached by a steady stream of people <laughs> with with begging bowls saying, you really, really need to fund us because, you know, you're evil. And by funding us, you'll somehow mitigate the evilness. And so you do end up with this sort of weird uh, dichotomy of uh, both demands for funding and then criticism of the fact you funded uh, and trying to create some kind of ethical principle framework around that and, and one ideally you can be very transparent about and explain to the world exactly what your rationale is, I think is difficult. And yes, I agree. It'd be great to come back to an episode on that. And I think we've both had good and bad experiences, including (laughs) making mistakes in this area where you funded something you thought in good faith and it's come back and caused you more harm than good. Um, Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. And the closest we got, and I thought that it was a really nice episode, and in, on reflection, I think a really important one, was when we talked about whether to collaborate with or sure. oppose other tech companies, how yeah. tech companies work together. I don't remember the number of that episode, but uh, I think that that was an, uh, reflecting also on the fact that we were we were in our previous lives in these two very different positions where sometimes you had to ask yourself, you know, is this an industry issue or can I get out from yes. under it and, and sort of escape and, and let it be a, a sort of company issue for someone else. Yeah. And, and, and that's, of course, something that also then happens in trade associations where you block others' proposals or you you get together and you will uh, find unified uh, a unified interest. So I think that's one that I'd like to do. Um, are there any others? Yeah. I was just the collaboration one was episode twenty five, and uh, I 25. certainly had some feedback from people who work in tech companies going that was actually helpful to, to them as they think this thing through. So yes, um, so that was that, and then uh, I guess one that we. I mean, we, we've, I can see one of the themes we've come back to a number of times as splinter nets, jurisdiction, all of these questions. Mm. And I guess that is the like uber question <laughs> for tech policy because, you know, we're talking a lot about specifics of regulation. Regulation typically happens at the national level, exception in the case of EU, it's the kind of supranational collective level, but, but basically it's still a national or, or in some cases, say the regional um, uh, game that people are playing. And the internet is this global technology, so we keep coming back to. And so, you know, all of the questions about regulation have to be set against this these questions of splinter nets, uh, jurisdiction, geographical questions. You know, as people like the UK are kind of racing ahead with their UK online safety bill, uh, they're doing that you know, purely from a, a sort of national perspective, and yet it creates structures which, if they were copied by another 130, 40 140 countries would be you know create a dramatically different landscape for the businesses you know one country doing something may be workable three or four countries doing it may still be workable 140 countries doing it may be orders of magnitude more onerous for tech companies and people may argue that's fine that's okay but in the real world, it may be that they become so onerous that and we talked a lot about this, that the choice of tech companies is then to opt out of the less valuable markets. So in other words, the yeah. trade-off becomes, I'll accept the regulation in my home market because I have to. And then beyond that, I'm going to be doing a calculation as to whether the cost of the regulation outweighs the benefit of being in that market. And it's still something we've not, uh, you know, we're not really settled as, as a business. And I think as... Europe runs ahead with its Digital Services Act and the UK runs ahead with its online safety bill and a few other pieces of legislation sort of come through if India regulates and a few other large markets regulate. Uh, We may hit these splinter net questions actually much sooner than we think. We've kind of been postponing them for years and they may may arrive. So that's one thing that I think I say we've touched on a number of times in the last year and it doesn't surprise me we did, but maybe one that comes to the fore in 2022. 
That's a good point. I like that. And I think that one of the things that when, when, I, when I hear you talking about this, one of the things that we could do that I think would be interesting is to to, to perhaps talk about the, the longer term uh, internet evolution question. You know, uh, we talk about splinternets, but what does that really mean? What are the different forms and, and how do we think this plays out? Because to take it one step further, if, if, if a company decides to opt out of certain markets, then, then what you get is not just splinternets. You actually also get tiers of quality so some uh, countries will have access to really good services some countries will not and suddenly you you sort of you cement a certain amount of inequality in the world by uh, limiting or tiering access to services in a way that's really uh, quite interesting plus of course at some point you have to talk about the geopolitical nature of the internet long term like what's the 50-year vision here i think it's it's a speculative session but a really interesting one um especially if we could sort of nudge a few experts to to perhaps join us and discuss that would be that would be really interesting it would and yeah because it works on the two levels there's yeah there's the internet as a set of protocols and the technology and then there's the internet as the collection of services that most ordinary people use on a daily basis uh and and so you've got to look at each of those are the protocols likely to change in any sense and there was some discussion sometimes around that around technical breakaways using particular protocols and standards that are different from the mainstream but even more immediately i think is this variation in the services that are on offer um and whether for each country when i go from country to country the package of services that i'm offered could change quite dramatically when that's not the case today in most cases apart from you know obvious example exceptions like china but in most of the rest of the world you go to any country in the world and you can access the same bucket of services that's if that changes that's going to be really quite different what do you think about sessions that are more inside baseball? I had I had one idea of a session that uh, I, I never raised because I thought it was too narrow, but it strikes me that it might actually be a, a really um, interesting one, and that's the that's that's one that would essentially be entitled um, "Being a European in a U.S. Tech Company." Oh yes, uh, I I think that would be an interesting session, but I'm also aware that I might be sort of just begging for my own sick aunt here. Um, what do you think? Is that, yeah. Would that I mean, be interesting? We, 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 I think again, it's come up a couple of times. I can remember it's sort of we've made some observations about about trying to influence policy in that way. I, I, I think that could be interesting, but maybe be an interesting chance to sort of broaden that out. You know, we have a lot of former colleagues now who are working for Chinese companies. Uh, oh, uh, such a good point. So, yeah. what's it like to be a European Chinese company? What's it like to be Chinese in a European or an American company? I actually think there's a sort of multi-dimensional aspect to it here that um, starts to get really interesting. Uh, so, there is that dimension that we're familiar with, but I'm just thinking, yeah, there may be a much broader dimension. And people who've moved, actually, would be really interesting if somebody who has moved from a you know, European who's working for a European company who's moved to an American company and moved to a Chinese company and can compare all of those different experiences. So should we try and find those people and see if they're willing? Yeah. Well, they might need to be working for nobody <laughs> to be willing to come on and, yes. and have a candid uh, thing. Or we could use one of those vocoder things where we distort their voice. And get, Ooh, talking, I like, like that. Oh. We should have like an anonymous guest. Anonymous yes, guest who will tell us how it was to work yes. for different companies. Yeah. I think that. And, and it's such a good point. I think I think what we should do instead of sort of focusing on the European US axis is the way that you describe is actually about making the point that there's no such thing as a multinational company. Yeah. All companies have, in a sense, a nationality. And and how does the nationality of the company uh, affect the people who work there, the policies they choose, the way they make decisions? This is another one that I've been thinking a lot about. Like, how are companies making decisions and what kinds of decisions are not being made? Because I, I, we had this experience and we've discussed it in a couple of episodes where where, where you, at the edges of the network, in country, you know what needs to be done that needs to be done now, but then you have to work your way down into the core of the company. And by the time you reach the right decision makers, you're like, ah, we already suffered all the reputational damage. Yes. If we're not backtracking, we're just reawakening this same issue and we're going to suffer that damage on our way out again. It's like, if you, there's a Swedish saying, if you step into an accordion, uh, keep your foot there because <laughs> it will sound equally bad when you draw it out from the accordion. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, but but it, make, it's, it, it occurs to me that it might be interesting to also at some point talk about 
efficient decision making yeah. in in policy perhaps yeah I more of that, a craft episode more of a craft episode. absolutely i think that's right yeah the efficient decision making i mean again i you and i both have the same experience of when you know joining companies when it's relatively small and you actually had a lot of scope to make decisions at the edge because there, there weren't the people in the center to care <laughs> and there weren't people on onto whose desk you could throw these decisions uh and then over time there's the organizations build up there are more and more people who care uh, about those decisions and you then spend and more time instead of making the decision sort of preparing the briefing for somebody else who's going to make the decision yeah uh, and that yeah it's quite a fundamental shift in it and as you say sometimes that means the decision is made too late uh, and and actually you know it would have been better i think sometimes take the risk of the person on the edge at the edge making the decision um whether right or wrong at least it would have been speedy <laughs> uh and and the time delay can be absolutely you know um uh, itself a problematic uh, issue, and so you haven't necessarily it's got lethal for many of the issues yeah. you're in, because you're involved in this issue, and you're tied into a press cycle that's twenty four hours, and you get a decision in seventy two. Yeah, <laughs> during which time you're massacred by the press right. so it's not great yeah and I then agree. internal comms also come in because again you end up and i'm sure you've experienced this is the awkward thing where you've made a decision you thought it was a good decision the first time that your ceo or the company leadership has become aware of it is when they read an article in the new york times or something about <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly the note comes down going how did we make this decision and you're like ah yeah. you know and actually you may have done the internal comms but no one cared about it until yeah. it appeared in the new york times because the email was there but no one read it because it was just noise yeah. you know? <laughs> I, I, I'm, uh, here's a session we'll never do which is uh, executive management <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's uh, but it is interesting and at some point this sort of the uh, it might be interesting to dive into the silicon valley dynamic where you know what's a founder-led company what's the role of venture capital in making policy decisions how has mm-hmm. that changed in the last decade and i think there are tons of things there that we can dig into as well um so uh we have a lot of sessions left that's good news i think and we have a lot of sessions for you to listen to if you if you want to listen over the the christmas or the the happy holidays here um there's certainly no dearth of uh content and you can let's just sort of make a short advertisement here in the middle where can we find all of these wonderful episodes so so you can jump off from my website www.regulate.tech or if you go to podbean uh, you'll find them on podbean at regulate tech i think it's the name of the podcast dot podbean.com yes dot podbean.com right. or if you go to spotify and search for regulate tech uh, spotify which i love and has just given me my highlights of 2021 which i really enjoyed if you're a spotify user you i'm sure this is the time of year when you yeah uh, 17000 hours i found it lots and lots of Britpop. Anyway, that was my thing. But Spotify also, importantly, has our podcast on it. So again, if you look for (laughs) regulate.tech on Spotify, then you'll find us there as well. It sounded like we had an almost rehearsed transition there into talking about 2021 and the highlights from a policy perspective. So well done. Um, uh, So so we talked about the podcast. And Hmm. and I must say, I've really been enjoying the the opportunity to make it. So so, uh, stay tuned for more in the new year. But let's sort of just transition gently into Chronicle mode, 2021. Um, uh, It was the year of Britpop, you just said. (laughs) What if from a policy perspective, um, let's let's sort of do a you know what's the what do you think was the book of the year so, so the book I, that sort of came out I and think, really mattered yeah I think the biggest decision was around tax uh, so that was the big one and it's not sort of oh sexy, yeah. sorry yeah no no sorry yeah, uh, um, yeah. The, so let's go with the biggest decision I asked yeah. about books oh, sorry <laughs> oh the books yes yeah um, uh, but no we'll so, come back to the books come we'll back, you've actually books. meant book book I was I was using a figurative book as opposed to a literal Ooh, book um, well done yes yeah I was, <laughs> so that the, of the uh, figurative books the issues that came out um, I thought tax was the really big one that sort of not that not been mentioned that much apart from in nerdy circles but let's just remember as we went into 2021 um there was a still this feeling that's been around for years that the tech companies get away with not paying tax and this is an outrage and we were in a position where various countries around the world were drawing up their own tax rules that would have meant they're they're just going to grab money from the tech companies in country uh, and this particularly was targeted at US-based tech companies and would have led to the US Treasury feeling it was losing out and taking retaliatory measures 
and we were heading into a tax war with the with the tech companies in the middle. End of 2021, we're not there yet, but we have an agreement in principle, and there's a lot of technical work going on to make it happen where tech company taxation will change, and they, they there will be a formula, a new formula that divides up how much of their profit should be taxed in different jurisdictions. And I say, it's not over the line, but I, I am you know, pleasantly surprised at the amount of progress that's been made to trying to resolve one of the thorniest issues that's been around you know, for years and years. I mean, it's, it's, it's not limited to tech. We should be really clear about that. And actually, our tax episode number 13, uh, lucky for some, <laughs> we'll go into that in detail. But but uh, um, it's not, you know, by any means sort of completely signed, sealed and delivered. But there does seem to be general will on behalf of the US government and other governments around the world to come up with an enduring framework that means when a tech company makes money, everybody feels like they're getting a reasonably fair slice of the pie from the economic activity that's been created. And that's quite mm. dramatic <laughs> for, from where we were to where we potentially are going to be. Uh, well, um, what about other candidates? Were, would you? Uh, someone could say that 2021 was the year of content moderation. Uh, yeah. The Easy Code of Practic, the UK Online Safety, the ESA. There is so much happening here on the content moderation. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel it's the year of proposals, but it's not the year of substance yet. So the sub, you know, the real substance is going to happen next year in in the sense of. Um, the nitty gritty of actually sort of sorting out what these frameworks should look like. So the online UK online safety uh, proposal has been through what they call pre-legislative scrutiny, where a group of members of parliament um, hear from witnesses and 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 respond to the government's proposal, and they've just published their their um, report that sort of as a response to that, and then the government has to go back and redraft what it thinks the final version of the legislation should look like, and then that will probably come before the UK Parliament spring next year and maybe get finished by summer or autumn. So we're still quite a long way from settling things. Um, uh, there's there's all sorts of moving parts still in there that haven't been resolved. Uh, the UK, uh, the EU's proposals have been sort of more steadily working through the EU system, but again, as you and I know from having dealt with EU level legislation, you know, there's still some way to go until you've got all of the different parties lined up. So, so I absolutely yeah. agree. There's been a lot of progress in terms of proposals, UK and uh, EU wide, and actually the Australia continues to churn out its proposals. Interestingly, nothing happening in the US still. I mean, substantively on this, uh, you know, again, lots of noise. Um, but the US, as we know, and we've talked about really struggles to find a legislative formula for dealing with speech issues be- without contravening the First Amendment. So there's very limited scope for the US Congress actually to try and regulate speech issues. And again, I, there's a lot of noise, a lot of these sort of um, uh, uh, going nowhere type proposals that you'll get in the US, but they're kind of very obviously going nowhere. And I still think a very long way from there being any consensus around the specifics of what should happen as opposed to the general idea that something must be done. So that's interesting. It means that you put your finger on something that you think will be a big deal in 2022 in terms of substance. So content moderation, we had a general rehearsal in 2021, but in 2022, this actually comes into uh, perhaps not force, but at least it sort of takes its final legislative form in some places. What about, so another candidate for sort of issue of the year, uh, I think is quite obviously competition if we come back yeah. to the US where there's been a lot of focus on on competition and and perhaps let me see let me test this with you perhaps one of the most undervalued um, pieces of news that has come up this year was just quite recently when the CMA decided to unwind an acquisition for the first time yeah. i don't know of any other competition authority that has done that with tech companies uh, yet but um, as far as i understand there's actually really an unwinding um, being proposed uh, for the first time. The Giphy acquisition, is that? Yeah. Exactly right, yeah, yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the CMA is really an interesting one to watch because they are – so, so the, you're right, there are different debates happening in, in different places. The U.S. has quite a lot of um, 
thinking, I think, going on. It's only now we've got the new Biden administration. They've got their people in place. They're kind of thinking about what to do next. But the court And cases, I think the people in place is actually the 2021 is let's recruit uh, all of the right yeah, people and yeah. put them in all of the right places. That's been the sort of yeah. the, the US uh, approach, I think. So Sorry. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, but, as I said, but the court cases are still showing how far they've got to go because the, court ca- the courts in the US operating under existing law are not necessarily you know, finding in the way that critics of the big tech companies would want. And there've been some cases where they've, you know, actually dismissed them and said there aren't competition issues here. Uh, well, there aren't under current law, but you're right, the Biden administration has people in place who who I think uh, want to change the law, will want to recommend changes to the law in order to try and catch the kind of behaviours they think uh, should be subject to competition enforcement. The UK, interestingly, is sort of just charging ahead. <laughs> and they, as you say, they've sort of made that proposal around um, unwinding an acquisition. And uh, um, they're also, if you see the noise, I think it's just this week, they're talking about the dominance of the app stores, the Google and Apple uh, app stores as a kind of major issue they want to look at. So they're just, the UK CMA seems sort of hyperactive uh, in this area and is really sort of pushing ahead. And I think they can do that, you know, in, in large part because they are, they're, they're quite a, a significant market from a digital point of view. They're quite US-like in terms of the, you know, use of services and the distribution of services, the kind of iPhone, Android split all this sort of stuff it's quite a us like market um but it can also move a little bit more nimbly i think than uh somewhere like the eu where uh you know where competition issues if they're dealt with at the eu level there's a lot of machinery that needs to kick into action and pull in the same direction it's quite slow so you're right we're seeing lots of different things but the the uk I mean, again, it'd be interesting to see how much pe- people say, look, we care about the UK market enough uh, t- to accept these judgments. So far, I think the UK market is significant enough um, yeah. from business point of view. Um, but I think you're going to see the UK sort of moving ahead quite, a, quite uh, aggressively and quickly. Uh, the US perhaps sort of following through, um, depending on where they can get the legislative changes through. And that, again, will, we have to say, in large part, depend on the midterm elections they're going to have towards the end of next year, um, how those are going. Uh, although there does seem to be some bipartisan support for changes, so, but I think for different reasons. So whether the, the motivations will allow those groups to come together will be an interesting US debate. Um, and then there are some things happening, I think, again, at member state level in the EU and obviously judgments that are being made um, at the European level that will, again, I think, be quite significant in 2022. Um, I think this year for the EU has been largely status quo. It's not been a radical departure. There's been reinforcement of some of the judgments they've previously made. But I'm not aware of you know, policy going in a radically different direction in the EU from the one that had been established over the last two or three years. No, I, I think that's fair. And I think that the DMA is still being discussed. And I that's think right. there, 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 is a, there is an argument that this is another candidate for 2022. But but if I wanted to sort of defend competition as issue of the year, I think I would point to this unwinding because it's so it's 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 a new thing that's happening in competition policy. And possibly the other thing I would point to is the Italian um, decision to fine Amazon $1.3 billion. Um, that it, one of the things that the European Union has managed to do historically is to sort of collect all competition mm-hmm. concerns into Brussels. If that no longer is the case, uh, the landscape will be radically different. If you have to deal with like a German, a French, an Italian, a Spanish competition authority, because they all now want to compete with the CMA, for example, mm. and they, they they see, you know, why should we be waiting for so long? Uh, as you pointed out, the European machinery might not move that fast. <clears throat> and if you end up in that situation, then I think that the first shots across the bow or the first the first indications, at least, would uh, belong to 2021, don't you think? That's right. And and as well as the EU-US angle, we've, we've got to keep remembering that there are you know, competition decisions being made in Russia, in India, in other markets around the world that are also quite significant. So uh, something just to be aware of that we need to keep our eye on what's happening across the piece. And you're right, there. I think there will be... Uh, we're in a phase where you know, p- political nationalism is still very strong and you can look at you know over the decades things shift from multilateralism the the trend is all towards multilateralism let's try and you know deal th- deal with things at a multilateral level uh through to no it's really important i assert my national control over x and it certainly does feel that you know the last decade has been a a, a national uh, phase and i also think 
the more that you're in economic hard times so the post the 2008 crash and now with all the covid related economic hard times you know the drive to do things at national level is ever stronger and so you, you potentially you have this combination of tech companies appearing to be even more socially powerful post covid because we're so much more dependent on them and governments where the citizens are looking to them to fix things and they're very much in the mindset that I'm going to fix it. I'm, you know, the Indian government's going to put Indians first and that's quite right at this time and the EU government's going to put themselves first and not even at the EU level, no. The French government's going to put the French first and the Italian government's going to put the Italians first. And that's quite different, I think, from perhaps more comfortable times where people can say, oh, no, I'm happy to pool sovereignty and do something in the greater good, knowing we're all going to be okay. Well, no, that's not the spirit of 2021. And I think there's no reason to think that things are going to swing too far back in that direction next year either. So it's still going to be a landscape of national stuff. And whether that's content regulation or competition, I think it's going to be done at the national level. The tax one that I mentioned earlier, there's this interesting exception where we've had the big national drive and that does seem to be swinging back towards multilateral but there that may be also a recognition of the losers in this game so so with tax law even if you extract a bit more tax from these tech companies your own companies may end up losing when the u.s takes reciprocal measures against them so in that area there there's that dynamic playing out again in competition that's possible i'm not sure uh whether we've seen significant evidence of that yet but you can imagine that you know, one of the possible responses, uh, if a if individual national competition authorities end up taking lumps out of global companies, is whether that is going to be acceptable. Or that's going to be seen as a detriment and a harm to the headquarters country of that mm. multinational company, and whether they're going to start, you know, pushing back or fighting back. Um, so again, that's something we we really said. I think there's the, we've seen it in the aerospace sector where you get these Boeing Airbus battles going on <laughs> through the competition courts, and it's very clearly seen as a sort of, sort of there are national interests at stake. And maybe some of that will come across into the tech sector if there are more uh, national uh, competition decisions that seem to have an impact on the revenue of a global company. Yeah. And so, so issue of the year, tax, hmm. with two closed runner-ups in yeah. content moderation and competition, but we think that those are actually going to take main stage in 2022. Yeah. So, so let's invert the question. Which tech policy issue got the least love, was the coldest? You know, nothing really happened there in, in, in 2021. Yeah, um, I was going to say, from our podcast, the one that was least listened to was nudity when we talked about that, if you remember. No, it's not a tech policy <laughs> issue, Richard, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, but the, the big tech policy issues, actually, I think misinformation, disinformation, while it's still there, has come off the boil uh, in an interesting way. And I, I think because, again, it's not to dismiss it, but it was so closely associated with certain electoral outcomes that we haven't seen one of those electoral outcomes in a little while. And get you know, being candid, Donald Trump did not get re-elected. And therefore, you know, the, there are, I think, sort of two big fears around misinformation, disinformation. One is in the political side and the other is on the health side. And the health side is still there and, and we worry a lot about about political misinformation in the health space, particularly around COVID. But I think even there, 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 there is a, you know, when you see the anti-vaxxers and people like that sort of coming out, it's kind of pretty apparent that, you know, they're talking about um, well-founded beliefs. Yes, they're citing misinformation, they're pushing misinformation out there, but it, it's, you know, their, their own sort of behavior makes it hard to say, look, they were just, you know, ordinary, you know, uh, innocent citizens minding their own business until misinformation turned them into anti-vaxxers. No, it's like the other way around. They were there. There's something sort of fundamental about their belief system. So I think on, on, the, on the health anti-vax stuff, I feel there's less of a tendency to say, well, if only social media would remove this stuff, it would be fine. Because it wouldn't be, you know, it's pretty obvious that it still wouldn't be fine. Because these people are, for whatever reason, political reasons or anything else, they're against uh, vaccinations. They think Bill Gates is poisoning people. Blah 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 blah. And then on the political side, we haven't seen the upsets, uh, and we haven't seen, you know, the kind of results that make people say again, 
this outcome, this electoral outcome is only due to misinformation or disinformation is not an honest reflection of the votes that have taken place. Yeah. And at the beginning mm-hmm. of the year, there were, there were fears that misinformation, disinformation was feeding, and the still are fears, are feeding those who want to challenge the result in the US. But the result in the US was a legitimate result that everybody can see was legitimate was sort of, uh, um, and was not uh, governed by misinformation, disinformation in the sense of the, the way that people cast their votes, most people accept as a, a genuine reflection of their own political views. So misinformation, disinformation feels different in 2021 than it did in say, 2017, 2018, 2019, following those sort of shock results in 2016 that that certainly made that connection between misinfo and politics. I like that. I think one of the other issues we discussed where you could argue that there's been a lull in activity, at least, is copyright. Yeah. Um, building out you know, new copyright proposals or, or new uh, copyright bills is not something that we've seen a ton of, I think, in 2021. They stitched it all up a couple of years ago, Nicholas. They've got uh, <laughs> now that the EU, the EU regulation. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're right. It's not there's not new regulation, but but I think it is interesting that that the copyright holders certainly it felt like they got what they wanted you know yeah. uh, two or three years ago and now we're in that negotiating negotiation and enforcement phase and i think there have been some quite big payoffs made uh, under the eu regulation so uh, yeah be interesting i think we're in the we're in the phase after the legislation where those who who won in the legislation are now exerting their newfound powers whether that's the eu or australia over some of the news uh, snippet type stuff yeah, I think that's right. And so so uh, definitely a different feel to the miss and disinfo discussion, more of a sort of commercial hashing it out in the copyright space. Um, so what about, um, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, what about uh, bubbling issues for 2022? What do you think there is going to be any new issues in 2022 that we haven't had yeah. in 2021? Um, You've mentioned two that you think are going to sort of balloon into full-blown issues. Yeah. But I think there's some really interesting discussions around liability to be had. Um, and so that's, the, you know, the both the liability of companies and the liability of issues. This is kind of a, a really open one that, that um, uh, you know, to date we've assumed that the platforms are, well, the, we've wanted the platforms to be liable for a lot of what happens across the platforms. That's been the general political view that they should be liable uh, for things that happen uh, uh, um, uh, by the, that are done by people on their services. Um, and and now, like a lot of the legislation, sort of heading in that direction to try and create that liability. Um, but I, I don't think it's fully worked out or fully thought through. Like this question of, you know, an individual comes online, they access an internet service, they do something awful. How do we assign the liability between the individual and the platform? Uh, and and, and when it, particularly when it comes to things like criminal liability, you know, it's quite a big step to say, well, you platform are criminally liable for the thing that, that the individual did on there, uh, either along with the individual or perhaps instead of the individual we're just going to hold you liable and we're not going to worry about them all of these questions i think have been bubbling around but they're not fully worked through and i think that's going to be a major issue in 2022 that we're not you know people not really focused on enough there tends to be a certainly in the debate in the uk a little bit of of wishful thinking well we'll just make the tech companies liable and they'll just clean their act up and yet, if you make somebody liable, criminally liable for something that is impossible, you know, you can't just clean your act up. You, you then have to make a hard decision about whether or not to operate in a market and, uh, um, or who, who's going to, you know, who's going to hold the liability or other ways you can hedge against that liability and try and, you know, push it back to somebody else. Do you try and create a formula where you push it back to the individual? All of that sort of stuff, I think, is, um, is massive. Uh, and yet it's sort of undervalued and under discussed to date. Um, so we've say, gone from almost nothing can be done. The platforms are not liable. They've got all these exemptions to, you know, full liability. And uh, that, that will itself have huge potential ramifications if we do go down that path. 
Mm, I like that. I, I, another possible candidate that you could have gone with where it comes to sort of new tech legislation that will actually be quite broad, I think, would be uh, around blockchain and crypto, right? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Do you think we'll see a lot of movement in that space? I mean, uh, yes. Yeah. So, so I guess there are sort of two aspects to that. And this is one area I'm, I'm being hesitant because... I have to confess, like, I have a sort of aversion <laughs> to blockchain, and I don't know why. It's just one of those sort of irrational aversions to it because it feels like it's sort of massively oversold. And, you know, as a, and I, and I am in that, you know, this is largely an, an uh, over elaborate, over engineered, and very expensive database kind of camp, which, which is appropriate for some circumstances, but not for the broad range of circumstances where it's being proposed as a technology. Um, but I do think, yeah, that the, the potential we get there, I think, you know, the, the um, chances of there being a crypto crash are huge. You know, everyone who sort of looks at the market would say that there are the structurally, because this thing is based purely on consumer confidence. Uh, if something is based purely on consumer confidence and there's no institutions to back it up in a lot of cases, then if the consumer confidence um, rolls out of control, uh, uh, dissipates, then then the there is no sort of limit to the depths of the crash that could happen. And when that happens, citizens are going to look to their governments to protect them, and it may be that governments today are going to say told you so you know it's your problem nothing to do with me but there comes a tipping point at which it's too important and governments can't do that uh, as you saw when the banks were under threat of collapse and the mainstream financial institutions however much you know people said well moral hazard uh, they should be allowed to go under like governments couldn't allow them to go under and crypto's not there yet but it's not far off getting to the point where it's bound into mainstream financial institutions and it may not just be the individual investors but it's you know if if crypto assets are being held by major institutions and it, and if the major institutions are not properly hedged their crypto assets and the crypto assets are threatened you have this sort of knock on effect uh, to institutions that governments would normally want to prop up. So I don't know, they, again, very complex, people far more expert than me in this, but it does feel to me like governments are going to have to at least show their hand. And yeah. if, if showing their hand is to say, like, it's totally your risk, we're not going to touch it, uh, institutions keep away, <laughs> institutions that we will have to prop up, we're going to tell you not to. And this is the Chinese approach is kind of veering in this direction to kind of say... You know, we may not be banning it altogether, but the governments make it absolutely clear that, um, you know, it's totally, totally at your own risk. So but it's close, close to ban in many places. Close but, to ban, yeah. but I think you're right. But I think, but I think you're right. I mean, the the point you were making about the regulation always following some kind of upset in an industry is a yeah. really good one. And I think that uh, if you have an, if you have a if you have a sort of financial crash-sized upset, then you get international regulation. If you have Enron-sized catastrophes, then you get at least national regulation. So there is a point at, at which you could imagine that space perhaps suffering through that um, and then seeing regulation come in. Uh, what uh, Another candidate for you. Um, so I think data protection has been fairly quiet. It's sort of, we have the GDPR, we're working it through mm. it, we're learning how to work with it. But one of the things that, that has happened lately, and uh, there is some evidence of this in, in Canada, is that data protection law is shifting slowly from data protection as its mental model to um, decision quality, yeah. justified decisions. So you're moving from, uh, you have the right to your data to you have the right to reasonable decisions, reasonable and fair decisions. And I think there's something happening in, in the underpinnings of data protection uh, law that is really interesting. It might not, might not come to fruition in 2022, mm. but, but it seems to me that, that there is a, a, almost like a tectonic shift in the way that people now think about data protection. It's not just about the collection of the data. That's not where the harm is. The harm is when decisions are being made about you in ways that you do not feel are justified or that you do not feel are fair and reasonable. And yeah. I think if that continues um, and if we sort of see more pressure that way that that will be quite a um a seismic shift yeah i mean you're absolutely right to bring that up because because the law does work slowly in data protection particularly as it's going through the european system and 
there are two big aspects that are still being fought through and are not settled that might end up getting settled next year that would be monumental. One is uh, the question of data transfers, which is still mm-hmm. not fully settled, and whether you know global internet companies can have global data structures or whether they need to somehow compartmentalize them according to jurisdiction. That's that's not a fully resolved question. Um, uh, so that would have massive impact, not just for internet companies, but for everybody who deals with data, which these days is every business. Um, and then the second one, to, to your point on the decision-making process, uh, is this question of you know profiling. Uh, and then in particular for the internet sector in relation to ads. And I know in our episode 37, we covered online behavioral advertising. And I think I confess to you, after listening, re-listening to our episode, I I, I kind of sat there going, God, how can this model survive? It's so intrusive. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I oh, people um, listening might go, what? This guy, what's this guy? But, um, it does feel, you know, it, it does feel sort of uh, like the risk profile of decisions made on the basis of um collected data uh, uh is a it's a very valid concern a very legitimate concern that people will have and and um i wonder having listened to that if you if you accept the kind of core principles of the gdpr and you set you know core principles that say you know, profiling is something you need to be very careful about very transparent about particularly when it leads to decision making um there are, I think, some really legitimate questions about the extent to which uh, sort so of monitoring people's activity on the internet and then building profiles about what you th- think they're like is sustainable over the long term versus, yeah. you know, other sort of consent-based models for people to register their interest in something uh, mm. very you know, sort of proactively with, with potentially some kind of incentive. So that's, that's the core difference. I mean, the, the advertisers we discussed in our two episodes on advertising, the advertiser is quite legitimate and proper that people who want to market something can can and should only reach those people who are likely to want that product. So it's good for everybody. It's good for the customer. It's good for the business. Blah, blah, blah. But there are different ways to do that. And the way we're doing it at the moment is this sort of passive collection of data that then allows someone to predict whether somebody is uh, likely to want the product versus the active expression of interest. And, and it's logical why we do that, because the active expression of interest, people would normally expect to be rewarded for it. Uh, you'd have to form some kind of relationship with them already and entice them to do that, as opposed to the passive model where you can just look at them and make that profile. So I just wonder if there's going to be a shift from the passive to the active uh, mode, mm. where we will still get targeted ads, but they'll be based on active expressions of our preferences. Uh, that could be huge. Well, that would be huge uh, for everybody. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So we we have a couple of. I mean, mm. it looks like twenty twenty two will not be boring. And certainly yeah. for you tech policy professionals out there, this sort of spells job security. I think. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's. I'm not, I haven't forgotten my first question yet. I still want to sort of go through a couple of rapid fire questions with you on on you know book of the year, for example. Yeah. So which which book do you think? had most influence on the tech policy debate this year. Ah, so that's hard, because I have spent most of the year reading books about the British Empire. <laughs> this year. Yeah. <laughs> because Fair I, enough. I can recommend uh, Empire Land and the history of the East India Company. And so I'm pretty, pretty um, obsessively reading uh, those kind of books. I'm trying to think of that. Have you got a good tech policy book you can throw in? Because I'm... Well, I it sort of feel, I, I don't know if it was actually published this year, but I think it was. I sort of feel, no, it wasn't. It was published a few years ago. But I sort of feel that the book that has dominated the, the different feeds that I monitor is Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism. Oh, yeah. I think, I think that has been a big deal. And uh, certainly... Uh, uh, in a way that I think is is interesting as well. It sort of it responded to a need to to talk about uh, the way the information society has evolved. Uh, now I don't agree with I, I think I don't agree with most things in that book, and we can talk about why later. But but I think it has certainly played a monumental role uh, in a lot of the policy discussions. Yeah, it's cited. It's cited so commonly by people that yes, it's, I, I agree. It's hugely influential. So it's, been, it's a couple of years. I think it's now uh, been uh, a much cited book. Um, but yeah, that's that's a big one. I guess the other one. I mean, you know, there is a there is the um, uh, 
uh, internal uh, document library of Facebook, uh, I guess, is the other. <laughs> the best but, I understand. But the book that has been published this year is the internal uh, uh, library of Facebook, uh, which has been poured over by a lot of people and, and read. Um, so maybe that's something we did, we should touch on. <laughs> yeah, just mention that that happened this year before we move on. But again, interestingly, yes. now that we're, whatever it is, a month or two on from those disclosures that was sort of headline at the time, I think on reflection, there wasn't that much that was new in there. It was it was kind of reinforcing views that people already had. And I don't, as I reflected, I don't think I saw anything in there that was surprising. Uh, not just to me as somebody who'd been on the inside, but I think generally it's not surprising. Um, but what he did was, uh, actually to Shoshana Zuboff's kind of uh, criticism as well, it sort of reinforced the notion that the problem is with the capitalism. <laughs> it's it's tech plus capitalism that's the problem, that there is this, uh, it's sort of fed this view that there is this um, urge to make money that is distorting behaviour in uh, um, surveillance capitalism uh, language. It's sort of in terms of data collection. The data collection is being driven by the desire to make money in the context of the Facebook disclosures and, and Instagram disclosures. The suggestion was that content moderation and algorithm design was being driven by money uh, rather than just pure data collection. Um, so I think it, all of them add up to this essentially a sort of criticism of capitalism as a driving force for technology. Maybe that's one for us to come back to. Should oh, yeah. internet services... Capitalism is a really good... I think, yeah. I think you're right, because it also feeds into the wider inequality debate and uh, the discussion about whether capitalism is failing or succeeding in yeah. uh, making sure that our society is um, developed in the right way. And I think, I think, should, I think it's a really interesting pull, one. Pull it back. Yeah, capitalism is... is, um, is Part, I mean, it's a really interesting phrase, but it's sort of it is the, that there is a profit motive. I mean, it's just sort of yeah. narrow, more narrow it down that things are done for a profit motive, as uh, as opposed to anything else. That's what people are really railing against, aren't they? And that if people are seeking to make a profit out of internet services, they will always uh, uh, act against the public interest. Is the view um, of the critics here? Yeah. Yeah. It was also the year of founders stepping down. Um, yeah. You saw Dorsey step down from Twitter, and I think this was the year that Bezos stepped down from Amazon, was it yeah. not? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, do you do you? I, do you, I know where you're going with this. I know where you're going with this. Okay, I'll, I'll stop there. I'll stop I'm there. Gonna, I'm just thinking. I'll tell you one thing that did jump out at me was when I read an article <laughs> that kind of said um, Mark Zuckerberg is now the second youngest CEO because the new CEO of Twitter is older and oh. I have to admit I had totally lost track uh, of um, uh, how old Mark Zuckerberg is when I went to work for him he was 25 so I went to work for a 25 year old wow. CEO and, and and maybe because of that it's like in my head he's still in his 20s but actually he's 37 and the new Twitter CEO is I think 30, also 37 but a few months younger maybe wrong by half a year or so but basically they're both in that 37 38 zone uh and uh, apparently the new twitter ceo is the younger of the two which which was quite something yeah but it's a trend worthy of uh noting uh, that many of the tech companies that are under debate no longer are founder-led in the classical sense which is sort of kind of a um it's it's not a big deal generally, but it I think it is. It's a few articles have been written about it and what it means and how it will uh, perhaps change the way that these companies act yeah. in the future. So it's a it's it's one to sort of just gen, gently note in your yearbook. Um, so I just have to ask, what was your most listened song on Spotify? Oh, my most listened song on Spotify was um, "If You Tolerate This" by the Manic Street Peach Preachers, which is. They're a Welsh indie rock band. I didn't. I, they kind of passed them by at the time when they were uh, actually fashionable, and now they're not really fashionable. But if you tolerate this, is a, a basically a song about the Spanish Civil War, saying if you if there was a poster uh, that actually had a picture, sadly, of a, a child who'd been killed in a bombing raid, and it was if you tolerate oh. this, then your children will be next. And it was trying to recruit people to go and fight the fascists in the Spanish Civil War. But it's quite a powerful song and that and i had that on endless loops as i was doing my walking this year trying to uh, um keep myself healthy uh, during various lockdowns uh, ah yeah. yes well yeah and yours so actually i uh, i i don't remember which one was the top one but uh, the top three uh was um chemtrails over the country club 
um, by Lana Del Rey. I really love that song. I thought it was fantastic yeah. uh, in so many ways. And then I think... Um, was this a kayaking th- soundtrack as you were out kayaking? No, I actually listen to mis- music when I write. Uh, oh, oh, no, I know what the I know what the first one was. It's uh, You're not going to like it. It was Loom um, uh, um, by Bonobo and... Uh, I think this Icelandic artist who I always mispronounce Olaf or something. Yeah. Um, so that might, because I, I always listen to things when I write and mm-hmm. I listen to them on repeat. And so I end up listening and it was like, Spotify had this phrase. It was like, you listen to this 4,672 times, but who's judging? It's yeah, like, yeah. you are judging Spotify. I hear you. You're judging. Yes. <laughs> and so um, I thought it was hilarious. Well, we're breaking for yeah. the for the holidays and we are uh, going to return in the new year um, with... Uh, with more sessions, we have a few ideas already from this this session, uh, but we would love to hear from you and love to hear what you'd like for us to uh, look into or who you'd like us to invite to the show because we need to get around to actually having guests, which we've uh, discussed a couple of times. Uh, and uh, I think with that, we're going to wish everybody happy holidays and a great restorative break because... We need it. I got a, I got a Christmas card today where someone had crossed out "Merry Christmas" and it said, "Hope you're keeping it together." Was the only text on the card, and, I, and you know it's been a difficult year. But I must say that that uh, you know all things considered, um, I really enjoyed these conversations with you, Richard. And so thank you very much for doing this podcast. Likewise, have a great break, and the same to all our listeners if they're in parts of the world where this is the festive season. Indeed, take care. <laughs>